Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. As we all move forward in light of COVID-19, we want to encourage you to make a priority of joining us in person for worship. Because as you know, listening to a podcast can never replace the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we look forward to seeing you soon. In the meantime, here is this week's message. So good morning. I'm glad to be here with you today as we continue our series in the book of James titled A Faith That Works. And um, kind of the the thing that we try to do here um, is go through books of the Bible every year. And so we didn't go verse by verse through the book of Hebrews because, well, it's Hebrews. And so we did that in about 10 weeks. It's a pretty thick book. Um, We're going to go verse by verse through James. And every year we want to get in a good mix of going through the Bible, looking at some theological topics, and then some maybe popular topics that we need To deal with. And this is one of those times that we're going to go verse by verse through James. It's a great time to bring your Bible out. And hopefully by the end of the the series, you will get a good understanding of the book, which is a powerful book and a very helpful book. Uh, Last week, I was so thankful that Gary could cover. I went and married uh, my younger brother up in marriage. That was great. And I know uh, Gary cracked open the book of James. We stopped at James 1 the first week. And last week, Gary talked all about trials and temptations. You know, we're going to get more into that today. But we saw last week that James said, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy when you face trials to which all of us say, nope. Right immediately, we already argue with James right at the beginning. But he reminds us, and he is laying an extremely important theological foundation for our lives. He's saying, listen, you need to look behind the scenes, look behind what's really going on. He says, you know, things are going to happen that you don't like. Think COVID, right? But it's able to produce something in you. You and I, we can never forget. I mean, this is so important. We can never forget that God wants to do something in our lives, He wants to take us somewhere. He wants to take you and I, both of us, towards maturity. And maturity can come with age, but just because you're older doesn't mean you're mature. Now, does it? For instance, I'm not going to give a lot of examples here, but I have. You probably have. I've met older people who still throw tantrums like toddlers. Have you? Yeah, I mean, just because you're old doesn't mean you're mature. But maturity, especially spiritual maturity, is about our growth in Jesus Christ. It's not just about getting older. It's about growing older in him. And trials is one of the ways in which we get to see our faith. We get to see where it's at. Now, when God tests our faith, is it for him or is it for us? Well, well, God already knows, doesn't he? And so when we go through these trials, we go through these testings, it produces something for us to see. It shows us if we really believe what we claim to believe. If we really trust God with the things that we claim to trust him with. Which then shows us where we need to work in our lives. You see, a clear indication for me of something I I need to work on is when I fail a test. Isn't that true? I mean, if I fail a test, that means I need to keep learning. It doesn't mean I'm a failure like in school. You ever fail a test? Just me today? Okay, no problem. In school, I failed plenty of tests. And all that did was teach me where I need to keep 
learning. It doesn't mean I'm a failure. we got to remember that. Just because you may fail a test doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you need to keep studying and growing in an area of life or a subject. If you fail an entire class, does that mean you're a failure? No, because I took Algebra two, 1 twice. Y'all laugh all you want, but I passed it now, didn't I? I'm standing here before you saying I passed Algebra 1. I cheated through Algebra 2. We won't talk about that today. But the same goes on with life. Our goal should be to continually grow in life. We're going to fail. We're going to have hiccups. We're going to make mistakes, but we want to keep growing. What I'm trying to say, if you're the same you were five years ago, you've missed the gospel. You should have a mark. You should know that I'm growing, that I'm growing, that I'm growing. I'm becoming mature in Jesus Christ because God wants to do something in you and through you. So James lets us know that when we face these trials, we should face them with joy, not because we enjoy them, but we face them with joy because now I have an opportunity to grow. I have an opportunity to learn something about myself. I have an opportunity to become mature in Christ. And James is going to continue on this themes of trials for us today. He's going to give us an example While there could have been many, it's interesting, he chooses an example that every single one of us will be and are tested in. He says, look, this stuff happens with the normal everyday stuff, stuff you don't even think about is a trial or test. Here's our example, verse 9. He said, believers in humble circumstances, it's a nice way of saying poor. And when we're talking about being poor, we're talking about if you just don't have enough money, if you don't have a lot of stuff left over. Not if you've created so many credit card bills, now it's hard to pay them. All right, that's not poor, that's being in debt. That's a difference, isn't it? Yeah, so when we're talking about believers in humble circumstances or people who just don't have a lot, who maybe don't earn a lot. We've, we've all been there or are there. He said, ought to take pride in their high positions. But the rich, the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like the wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So James is going right at it. He says, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, your financial situation is a trial. And you may say, well, hold on, hold on. Does that mean that God makes me poor? No, the idea is bigger than that. What James is teaching is whatever financial situation you're in, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, or whether you're rich and you become poor, you're poor and you become rich, or somewhere in between, wherever you're at financially, we are in a trial of testing how we handle, how we deal with our money. Money is a big trial of life. Remember, the foundation of the Bible is that you and I, we are simply stewards. We are managers of God's stuff. He created the world, he owns the world, and he gives us things to manage on behalf of him. We were always created to manage under him. He's the owner, we are under him, but the common human problem is we want to do it our way. We want to be the masters of our fate. We want to control our destiny, destiny which, which you can't. But we want that. But no matter how much you try, you can. He says, no, no, you're just managers. 
We were made, you and I, this is a foundational, very beginning of the Bible type of thing. We were managed. We were made to manage God's stuff. That is the world and all that's in it. Therefore, as you know, the owner directs how you manage. If you own a company, do you let your manager decide everything? No. You're the owner. It's yours. You allow them to manage. You give them guidelines. You give them principles. And over and over throughout the scripture, we are warned that we don't know anything and nothing should ever own us. Our things and our money have a way of wanting to control us and own us. And he says to the humble circumstances, those, those people who don't have a lot, he says, he gives encouragement. He says, take pride in your high position. And that idea of pride or that idea of boasting, it's tied back to verse two. He's telling you how to consider it joy, what this looks like. He's saying to boast in your humble circumstances because you have the opportunity to grow. We're like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. He's like, no, no, but, but that's what you have the opportunity to do. You have the opportunity to grow. You say, well, Brian, I don't, I don't think James understands how money works, which he would say, no, no, I don't think you understand how the kingdom of God works. Remember, one of the big things is the great reversal. One of the amazing things in Scripture, and it bothers me and it should bother you, is the great reversal Jesus constantly talked about in the kingdom of God. Because praise God, he doesn't look at the things, and he doesn't look at things the way we look at them. We should be so thankful. Look what Proverbs tells us. It's all in Old Testament, New Testament, filled with it as well. He says, he mocks the, mock, the proud mockers. He shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. So the idea is, those, how our world tells us, is that we get caught up and we think that, hey, I want to be something, so I need to draw the attention of the world. I need to show everybody how awesome I am, how great I am. I need to build this platform. I need to have this thing so everybody just sees how great I am. And it says, no, no, God will mock you. He will humble you. But he shows favor. He blesses. He helps those who humble themselves. So if you want God on your side, humble yourself and he will exalt you, which is counter to our thinking. We think if I want to be great, I got to do it. The Bible says, no, 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 no. You want God to do something in you and through you. It's not about you. Don't make it about you. If you haven't put this verse to memory, I, I highly suggest you do this. First Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. I like to point that out every single time. See, God says shorter people are better. That's what I'm getting from this. Okay, we're moving on. So do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. I'm telling you, memorize this, especially if you're younger. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. People, human beings, we naturally get caught up in looks, but it doesn't fool God. He's not concerned about your status. God is concerned about your character. God wants to do something in you and through you. He wants to take you towards maturity. He tells his followers this. He says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very, must be the very last and the servant of all. Do we think, no, 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 if I want to be first, I got to run up and put myself in front. He says, no, no, if you want to be first, you become last and last will become first. It's this great reversal. You see what the humble servants have, whether they do it by accident or they do it on purpose or they're forced to be last, 
if you're in that position, you get to work on the things of God. You get to work on the things of the kingdom of God. For instance, as a private in the, the army, the lowest rank you can be, I was able to learn humility whether I liked it or not. The position itself caused me to be humble. And it didn't matter if I wanted to be humble. I mean, I guess I could have served with a very arrogant, angry attitude. But let me let you in on a little secret. It doesn't work in the army. That little attitude gets fixed very quick, usually through a lot of push-ups and a lot of running. Now, I could have play-acted. I could have faked my way all the way through. Or I could have accepted my position that I'm the lowest rank. Everybody outranks me. It's just my job to serve. It's just my job to help out. So I did. And so can you. And what I learned was when I accepted my position of being the low and did my very best at serving and helping, what I found out rather quick, and you can find this out too, is when you take and accept that lower position, what ends up happening? They end up elevating you to a higher position. They end up moving you up. For the upcoming generation, when all you do is complain about where you should be or what you deserve or what you learned or where you should be at, you'll never get promoted or with that attitude, you will stay in the same area. Because here's the trick. If you can't be good at washing dishes, they're not going to put you in charge of the dishwashers, are they? If you need to flip burgers, flip burgers with a joyful spirit. I'm going to flip this burger the best I possibly can. Accept it and watch what happens. You got to clean bathrooms. Anybody here ever cleaned a fast food bathroom other than me? Boy, you learn humility real quick, don't you? Yeah, do it to the best of your ability. And the next thing you know, you'll be in charge of the whole thing. Take pride in those positions. Look what Jesus tells us, Luke 16, 10. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. This is actually how the world works, and it doesn't matter if you like it. It's the truth. Be faithful with the small things, and God can give increase. It's not being put of like, hey, when I have a lot of money, then I'll be generous. It doesn't work that way. Be faithful in the small things. Be faithful in the small areas. And then you can be given more. And Jesus was intentional about becoming a servant, wasn't he? Did he not wash feet? Therefore, if Jesus can take that position, so can you and I. Now, getting back on track, it's not just that the poor in service, poor and the servants are raised up because they're poor and they're servants. But it's understanding that through their trials, they have more of an opportunity to grow and learn more. They have the opportunity to build that stuff on the inside, that character. Because let's be honest, wasn't it when things were out there worst, you were on your knees the most? Wasn't it when things were out of your control and you thought you were going to lose everything or something tragic happened, you found yourself closer to the Lord than you've ever been before in your life? Yeah, there's a way to humble you. The humble in circumstances will be able to build more of the eternal thing. And rich people, people with wealth, they can do it. It's just unlikely. Look what Jesus says. He said, then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The rich have a tendency to trust what? Yeah, the riches. 
This is why James gets right to the point. The rich are the ones who have a tendency to trust in themselves. They think they got it. They think they own it. They can do it all. And they trust in these bank accounts and what they own. James reminds them, he said, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. And they will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises at scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms and falls, and the beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their own business. You see, the rich will pass away. They have the same, the same destiny as the rest of us. They will pass away. And just because they have more doesn't stop them from experiencing the common human experience of death. So James says, humble yourselves. Realize you are going the same direction as everybody else. And I like that he says in there, can you go back? While they go about their business, their busyness of life, they will fade away. And so a key indication I learned from James, what I think, is that you know if you're one of those rich people, because I can't give you numbers. Did you know that studies show that you always think somebody with double your money is rich and you're not? Even millionaires, they go, well, I'm not rich. How many of y'all, well, for me, I'd love to be a millionaire. Okay, I'm just, I'm not going to ask questions. I'd be like, man, I'd be rich if I had a millionaire. But stu- study shows that once you become a millionaire, if let's say I have $2 million in the bank, I go, I'm not rich. The guy with five is. But if you made the amount, if you knew when you were four years old how much money you made now, you, were gonna, you would think you were rich. Wouldn't? You'd be like, whoo, I could buy all the bubble gum in the world. The common human problem is we don't ever think we're rich. Studies show Forbes, it, it's always double. No matter what level you get at, you always think the people with doubles, the actual rich ones. But what I think Jesus, um, James is teaching us here, it's not that. It's the people who are going about their own business, the busyness of life. Did you know being busy is a rich person problem? So every time someone tells me they're busy, I go, oh, you're rich. Because when you're poor, how much can you do? Those of us who've been poor, not much. You can work. And then what? That's about it. Eat a bologna sandwich. That's about where you're at in life. You don't have the money. You don't have the time. You, don't have, you can't go shopping. You can't go out to eat. You can't put your kids in sports. You can't do any of these things because you don't have extra money lying around. So a key indication of being rich is people are going around their own business. Just busy, busy, busy. So if you're busy, I love that. Everybody says they're busy. You're rich. This is for us. You will fade away like everybody else. Now, there's nothing wrong with being rich and having money. The world needs people with means. We need people who can fund projects, who can give to the poor. The world needs great thinkers and great learners. I mean, I've come to the conclusion that in order to be a great thinker and great writers, it comes from people with means. It just does because they can afford a good education. They have the stability to write, to think, and learn. And the world needs people like that. In fact, we need more great thinkers and writers. So the world needs people with means. But just because you earn more money doesn't mean you're generous. Studies show the more money you have, the larger your percentage goes down. And you may say, well, hold on, but I got, I'm given a big number. But God doesn't count like us. God doesn't look at the number. God looks at the percentage. Remember, Jesus esteemed and celebrated the woman, the widow who gave a few pennies. You remember that story? Just gave a few pennies and it was far more than all the millionaires. She was like, that's, 
They're giving out of their excess. They're giving out of their wealth. That's, that's not a big deal. But that one who gave the pennies is who Jesus celebrated. Our whole way of dealing with money is a trial. We must take into account. Look what James tells us. It says, blessed is the one who preserves under trial, rich or poor or somewhere in between, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James reminds us that passing these tests and living how God has created us to live, there is a reward. There is a grade. Every single person will stand before the Lord and give an account. And I think Christians forget this. Every person, Christian or not Christian, will stand before the Lord and give an account. Look what Paul tells us. He says in 1 Corinthians, he says, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, woods, hay, or straw, their work will be shown. All that stuff we fooled everybody else with, we're not going to fool him. For what it is, because the day... Because the day will bring it to light, and it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. So this is telling us, this is for believers too, folks. We'll be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. I might barely make it, but Paul's saying there's something more. We will all face the judgment seat of Christ. And just because you have more doesn't mean you're going to get greater rewards. It may just mean there's a bigger bonfire for you. Think about that. Look at all this stuff I'm going. The Lord's going to be like, I know I burnt all of it up. You had a great big old bonfire. All of it burnt up and was ashes. I know this is kind of tough. James has a lot to say to the rich. I'm just warning you now. But look what Jesus says. He's just repeating what Jesus says. Look at this. Luke 12, 48. He says, from everyone who has been given much. Hey, say this with me. Much will be demanded. This answers a lot of your questions, by the way. And from the ones who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This is that common problem I hear in the church. Why are so few people doing all the work? Why do I have to serve so much? If you have more, expect to give more. Jesus tells us this. And this makes sense of the everyday life. I mean, think about this. You know this. If you have a district manager who's in charge of a bunch of different stores, do you expect that person to do more work than somebody who's a supervisor of one department in one store? Yeah, the more that you're responsible for, the more you will do. It's just how life works. And we remember, when you and I remember that none of it's ours, and we're just managing and stewarding on behalf of God, then it makes life significantly more easier. And so if you're a person of means, if you're busy, expect to give more, expect to do more, expect to volunteer more, give more money. It's what's expected. So there's no need to wonder, well, why do I have to do more? Because you're rich. Jesus already told us that, and I have a solution. If you don't want to do that, you say, I don't want to do more, I don't want more expected of me, that's fine. Give it all away. Just get rid of it. Then you don't have to worry about it, to which we go, well, remember the rich young ruler who had a problem with these things? What was Jesus' response? Give it all away. You want to be owned by your things? Give it all away. It'll fix it. 
We have to keep in mind the eternal. Remember what Jesus said here. Jesus says, Matthew 6, 20-21. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moss and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is one of those things we have to settle in our lives that we, you and I, should store up treasures in heaven for eternity and giving to the things of God is the way we do that. Jesus directly attaches our heart to our giving, which we go, well, no, that's not how it works, to which every financial planner in this world will go, no, it is how it works. You want to know what's important in your life? Look where your money goes. If God were to take an audit of your spending... Where would he say your heart is? Are we investing more in this world and things of this world that will fade, or are we investing more in the eternal? Now, just by living, you and I will face trials and temptations. Money is an example James gives us that tells us to think through. But by simply being human, by living, we automatically face tests and trials because of the type of creatures we are. The very type of life, the very fact that you exist will cause you to tempt to sin. So, Brian, I don't know if that's true. Let me ask you this. Coming human experience. Let's say your neighbor gets a brand new boat. Okay? How do you feel about it? Isn't it true every one of us are tempted to um, envy a little bit? You ever get a little envious going, I can't. I can't believe they can afford that. I mean, I don't have a boat that big. I work harder than him or her. How come I don't have a boat that's that nice? Right? All of us automatically, when someone else has something good happen, do we celebrate it? Or do we get a little maybe if we let it, a little envious of them? Is it just me or are we silent because it's all of us? I can't figure it out. I Actually, I already know. How about this one? When you see that picture and that perfect family on Facebook and their amazing trip, how does that make you feel? Don't you look for negative things to say about them? Well, I can't believe she wore that dress. I wouldn't wear a dress like that. In fact, I'm, yep, we do that. We're human. We look, we're disgusting. If we're honest, that stuff in here that we think is nasty. We start picking apart people for enjoying life. Just by living, we face this stuff. James tells us why. You ever wondered why? He says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he attempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away, say this with me out loud, by their own evil desire and enticed. By our own? Yes, by our own. He says, then after sin... After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it gets full grown, gives birth to death. You get the birthing picture there. So God never tempts us. He never entices you or encourages you to sin. Sin is never the answer. And the rational thing he's, he's, he's dealing with here is, okay, all right, God tests me and puts me through trials. So if I fail the test, he should never give me the test, right? So if I fail the test that he should never have given me, then it's actually God's fault. Right, God did this. Right, well, blaming God for sin is like blaming little Debbie for diabetes. Right? A little snack cake can bring joy. A whole box brings diabetes. That's not little Debbie's fault. You don't have self-control. It's not God's fault 
if you fail the test, the trial. He's never asking you to do that. All of us are tempted to sin. Marriage isn't going your way. Find a different woman or man. Someone being rude, let them know about it. I didn't want to give any examples there. We're going to let that one go. But yeah, let them know about it. Finances aren't going your way. Make sure to keep it all for yourself so you have enough. And this is perhaps one of the most important verses that we all have to deal with. And we have to figure out, we have to just really, really own whether we believe this or not. Because he's laying the foundation for how the world works, the problems of the world. They shouldn't shock you because he says evil is in every single person. You see, we want to blame the devil. We want to blame that other person. We want to say, well, they made me did it or they shouldn't have done that if they wouldn't have said this. But James is like, no, 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 no. It's not the other people and it's probably not the devil. It's probably you because you have evil living inside of you. And we got to, I have to be constantly on guard to put that stuff to death. He says the evil desire will entice you, meaning it will entice you because you are the greatest salesman you've ever met and you can justify every sin as it must be from the Lord. He must not be talking to me about that stuff because here's why I should do it. Right, we do that. Desire, and then it looks good, it feels good, it sounds good. We want to justify how we deserve this, even if it means by sinning. I deserve it. And when it's conceived, it gives birth to death. It gives birth to sin. And sin leads to death. It leads to decay. It can lead to a death of a marriage, a decay of your character, death in your uh, family unit, a death of your integrity. Yes, spiritual death, real death, but also death of those other parts that you wish you could get back. Sin will lead to decay. It's not okay. I should have made. I did that on purpose. So y'all didn't pick it up. Listen, what I said was sin will lead to, I messed up my thing. I was trying to be fancy, but it will. Sin will lead to decay and death. So we got to pay attention. It's not okay. And we say, James, it's not how it works. James, that's not true. James, I don't like it. And he says this, do not be deceived. He calls us out, doesn't he? We're arguing with him. We're like, James, it can't work that way. He's like, yes, it does. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. He said, don't lie to yourself. There's evil inside all of us because of our free will, because God created the way he created us. All of us have the ability and have evil inside these, these temptations. It's not that we have evil. We are sinners, so that works. But it's the fact that we are all drawn to sin. Because here's the problem. In order to have good, you have to have what? Evil. In order to do good, you must also be able to do bad. If you don't have good and evil, then there's no sense talking about either of them because it's nonsense. So in order to do good, if you think you're good, that means you're also capable of doing what? Bad. That's the only way you can talk about them. So if you're able to do great things, you're able to do deplorable things. It's in all of us. And when it's conceived, it creates death. Now, you know this. That sin creeps up at a moment's notice. That evil creeps up at a moment's notice. That's why James James is saying, don't be deceived. Pay attention to it. Understand it's there. Don't act like it's not. Pay attention because the moment we forget this, 
The moment we take away this truth, we start judging everybody else. We start becoming the judge and jury of actions. And what happens is we think everybody else is wrong and we think we're just fine. We start saying, well, all those actions they're doing is wrong and all the things I do are fine. When we don't understand that desire and entice and temptations and sin lives in every single one of us, we need an outside source then to be our judge. There's a real reason why you and I can't just follow our feelings. What we think is right, what we feel is right, what we want, that internal thing that says, well, this has to be good, this has to be right. Jim said, no, 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 there's evil in you. You need an outside judge. You need something else to tell you what's good and what's bad, to which James tells us in verse 17. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, that is God, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Don't our emotions change like shifting shadows, if we were to be honest? Yeah, God doesn't change, thank goodness. He chooses to give birth through the word of truth that we might be the kind of first fruits of all that he created. So James says, every good thing is from the Lord, but never forget that all sin is, it's taking a good thing from the Lord and doing the opposite of what he asked. Every good gift is from him. Money is good. It's fine. Being greedy is not. Sex is a good gift from the Lord. Managing inappropriately how he's told us is not. Sin is taking good things from the Lord and doing the wrong things with them. And thank goodness the Bible doesn't just tell us what not to do. That wouldn't be very helpful. He says, here's what temptation does. It leads to death. But never forget that truth, the word of truth, God's word, Jesus himself is truth. He said, never forget that God is truth. God has given us truth. And God wants to do something with that truth. Truth is real. And we can find it, we can discover it, and we can live out the truth. And he says, so we can be these first fruits, which means like set apart, the sanctified. We can be the people set apart for his works. And here's why this is important. This is the time that the Bible jumps out and assaults our modern philosophies, morals, and ethics. We can understand that right now, people and people back then wanted to do whatever they want whenever they want. We didn't want any repercussions. We didn't want it to cause any problems. And James says that's just not how it works. We have to understand there is truth. That truth exists, meaning there is a right way to live. There are facts about this life we can't alter. And we have to discover what that truth is. And that's what the gospel is about. It's given us the truth. It's given us what the world looks like, what we were created for, what we're supposed to do who we're supposed to worship, what we're supposed to worship. The Bible has this entire story, and it's inviting you and me to be a part of this true way to be human beings. Because if we think, well, I'll just do what I feel, the Bible says, no, you're full of evil. You're tempted to evil all the time, and that will lead to decay and death. The truth is found in God who wants us to experience a great life in him. You see, God wants you, God wants you to experience truth and good gifts. We have to understand that about who God is. You experience that through his word of truth, but you have evil desires within you that will lead to death. That's what we're faced with. That's what we deal with every single day. Listen, God cares about your relationships. 
You want to experience good friendships, a great marriage, good family environments? That's great. He wants you to. But that only comes from following him and treating him the way he's asked you to treat other human beings. That's how that works. And that's why the church, the Bible, me, will suggest that's why you partner with your friends and your romantic, romantic, uh, romantic relationships with people who are Christians. Because you're agreeing upon how we're going to behave. We're agreeing about how we need to treat each other. You see, God cares about your feelings and wants you to experience joy. But as we found out today, joy often comes from doing the exact opposite of what we think is right. For instance, serving people will bring far more joy in your life than owning a bunch of servants. Serving people, you being that person who love and help other people, will bring far more joy than owning a bunch of things and a bunch of people, whether you're workers or whether it's back then, whatever that looks like. Serving will bring far more joy. God cares about your sexuality. He really does. He created it. But a good sexuality only comes from following him with it. It doesn't mean it's going to feel easy, but I can assure you the sin that's involved there will lead to far greater things than you're ready for or than you want to experience. I would just take the following God in that aspect. Experience his joy and goodness there. God cares about your resources far more than you. He created it all after all. And he doesn't seem to be concerned about how much you have but he seems to be greatly concerned with what you do with what he's given you. And I think I understand why. It was coming from watching Troy this week. I think God understands and God knows what eternity will bring. He knows what's awaiting you and I on the other side. And he knows that no matter how much we struggle here, he understands it's going to produce something of an eternal nature, something about these rewards and what we will get later. For instance, I was watching my son struggle with his book report yesterday. He was getting upset about how many times I made him rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. No, you got to fix it. You got to fix it. You got to fix it. And I know something he doesn't know. You see, those skills of writing, those skills of thinking will produce something in him far more enjoyable later. For instance, he was upset because he couldn't play video games. So I took him away. He didn't have to worry about that anymore, did he? Took away. You're not playing him now. But here's what he missed out on this thing. Like us, we feel like I'm missing out. Yeah, but Troy, I know that if you work on your reading and writing, son, you're going to have far more fun later in life. Far more fun. Video games have never produced anything holy in me. I'm just letting you know. Not saying they're bad. I usually get angry at them, okay? I'm a little competitive, a little competitive. But putting that aside for him and work on something greater, I think that's what God's telling us with our money and our things, saying, yeah, I know it seems hard. Yeah, I know it seems difficult, but you just don't see what you're missing, what, what's waiting for you. What you're going to experience, I know that struggle seems hard now, but if you were to see where it's taking you, if you can see what it's doing in you, if you can see what you're going to bring to eternity with you, that maturity and that character, because this life, folks, leads to eternity. You will live forever. What are you taking with you? Love? Generosity? All the things of God, because all that other stuff will be burnt up in a bonfire. Can't take any of it. You see, God wants you to take this maturity. He's preparing you for your heavenly home. Did you think about that? He's preparing you for being at home and living with him. He's saying, here's what it's going to look like. Get ready. Here's what it's going to be like. Get ready. Each of us are on our journey. 
We all have our own stuff and junk to deal with. But if we trust him, if we love him and obey him in each of these trials of life, he will make us mature and we will receive this crown of eternal life. And I don't know where you are, but if you've never even given your life to Jesus Christ, or maybe you haven't wholeheartedly given him your life, I want you to remind you or let you know that God wants you to experience a new life in him. He wants you to handle your things differently, your marriages, your finances, your job, everything. He wants to give you this newness. He wants you to be able to stand and land on his truth about how this world really works. And if you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ to allow to be him your Lord and Savior, I want to challenge you to think through the truth you're standing on. What foundation are you building on? What are you working for? What are you doing? If it's not living for the glory of God, the God that wants to invite us to be with him for eternity, I challenge you to rethink that and really think about what you're living for. Because the gospel is the greatest story ever told, a true story. The story of Jesus Christ, God himself, coming down to you and I. Walking among us, living among us, and dying for our sin. To save us and secure us for all eternity. And he ensures us that there's more to this life than we know. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father. Help us all understand the foundational truth of the gospel. That you created us to be in fellowship with you. That you've given us a purpose in this life. Father, help us understand that through the trials of this life, through our financial situations and all the other stuff we deal with, that you want to produce something in us. Father, help us live out the truth of the gospel. Let us stand for truth. That there is a right way and a wrong way to live. Father, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us, not leaving us guessing on the proper way to live or the proper purpose of this world. Father, help us towards maturity. Through the power of your spirit, help us learn to think. Help us surround ourselves with other Christians so we can grow in maturity to learn. Father, if you're calling us today to take that next step of faith, whatever that step may be, or maybe the first step of faith, Father, allow us to hear your calling and respond. Give us the boldness to surrender our lives to you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.